Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Idle Chatter. Once again, I am your host, Ray Bohax, coming to you from Catswamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. So, uh, hopefully, you're having a good day. I always wish you that. And, um, you know, I'd say it's important in life to have good days. And uh, we can't appreciate the good days unless we have some days that are not so good. But sadly, you know, as I've said before, none of us want that. But I'm wishing you all a good day. And if it is a questionable day for you, I know without a doubt that tomorrow will be better. So I am going to ask you once again to please excuse me uh, if I have to pause during this recording of the podcast because my uh, I'm still under the weather with this bug in me and you may be saying but that hot rod farm is real sickly because you're ready for three podcasts he's told me the same thing so well what's basically happening and I've never done this before in the short history of the farm machinery digest since October uh, is that I am pre-recording uh, three podcasts in a row and so they would be so that is why I'm still fighting this cold or flu bug because they've done these past three podcasts over the course of three days so it has not been three weeks and I have not been sick for three weeks thank God so uh, and the reason why I'm doing that is as we come upon the Christmas season I am still going to be working just like all of you but some of the production assets that we require to uh, to take my recording and and make it into the podcast that goes up on the web I am not familiar with with all of that aspect of it my uh, web person in Georgia does that so some of those people are going to be on vacation and uh, so we need the I needed to get these up up to them ahead of time and then they will somehow do something that they call an embedded code and then they will be uh, launched to the public on the proper dates over the next couple of weeks and then the week of Christmas uh, I think that's when this podcast will run so that's like that's really not unusual in this industry even though like I said my short career I have not done that but uh, you know the same token like all my TV segments for successful farming magazine as the engine man, I filmed them all in one day. So they're filmed in, in rapid succession in one day, and then they run throughout the year. So that's, uh, I guess it's common in that business. Just like in the magazine writing business, we, uh, if I'm, let's say, doing a story, let's say, let's say it's an engine build story, 
and you're uh, following an engine being built, actually you're not there for three weeks while the guy is building the engine. What you would basically do is take pictures. Uh, lots of times, for instance, engine build, what we would say we're going to walk the block through the machine shop and then and then take pictures of the different procedures and then uh, put that together and make a story. So that's the uh, the dirty little secret of this business. And hey, that was the name of last week's podcast. But anyway, so I thank you once again in advance for your patience with my uh, with my voice breaking up and having to possibly stop and cough. So today's podcast. I don't know why I always say podcast. For some reason, I just drag that uh, that syllable out and go podcast. I don't know why I do that, and I hear myself doing it afterwards. But uh, hey, I guess just that New Jersey accent. But the uh, this week's I'm going to say it properly. Podcast. This week's podcast is there. There I go again. Uh, is going to be titled "The Lost Art of Diagnosing," and I really think that that's. You know, hey, maybe the art is not lost. Maybe it never existed. And there's a there's a difference between someone who is a your know, parts replacer and a diagnostician. And a diagnostician is someone who is able to identify what is wrong, and then then prescribe the proper method to to correct it. And the reason why I'm saying, though, choosing my words carefully with that is that obviously this podcast is referring to machinery on your farm and anything that's mechanical as far as diagnosing is concerned. But, you know, the the role of a diagnostician is in many different genres. I, a good doctor is a diagnostician, and the operative word in that sentence is a good doctor. So if you go to the doctor and say you don't you're not feeling well is that he has to try to glean from talking to you taking some measurements uh, measurements meaning listening to your heart maybe an EKG taking some other tests and trying to do the blood tests to determine what is going on and the same thing happens you know on the farm or ranch if we have a crop that is not uh, maturing properly or in its different growth stages does not look as it should, or even if it does look as it should, we may do a, uh, a pre-side dress uh, a soil test for nitrogen. We may do a, a, a foliar test, uh, a tissue test, not a foliar test, a f- t- tissue test for foliar feeding and seeing what's getting actually into the plant. Or we may actually do a, uh, I forgot what that other test is called. Jeez, uh, that that's that's embarrassing but anyway uh, so there's another test other than a foliar test that a lot of people do not not foliar test they uh other than you know a tissue test that that people i think oh sap test sap sap test that's what it is so so basically all these tests are performed to glean and trying to glean what is happening and what is and maybe as a precursor for instance to see whether a crop is going to need some additional nutrients like boron or, or manganese or something in its growth stages so it could yield to its full potential or if the crop already has some some signs of not being where it should be or looking the way it is then we're trying to diagnose that and to try to correct that as quickly as possible so di- being a diagnostician is very very important and being a good diagnostician is extremely important because a poor diagnostician, what good is that? You're basically just guessing. 
And so many times when per people work on machinery that they do not diagnose things. They, uh, they what we would call in the industry, throw parts at it. And in the auto industry, just throw, say, throw an auto part store at it. So just keep replacing everything until you fix the problem. And, uh, you know, sadly, lots of times in the auto industry, and, and this, this would pertain to farm equipment also, because even though the equipment has changed, the mindset has not changed, is that oftentimes that, believe it or not, a lack of diagnostic skills is rewarded financially. And how does that happen? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a quick little story. Years ago, when I opened up my first shop, and I was starting to mostly hot rod work, but some uh, before I really got involved with building engines, I was just doing what we would call tuning work. And I also was, you know, to supplement my income, because the business was just starting, I would take in everyday cars. And I got to be known very quickly, and like I say, I'm saying this humbly, as to be a diagnostician. So what had happened was that a gentleman came in, and I remember the car explicitly. It was a uh, 83... This was back 20 years ago. 83 Buick Estate Wagon. Gorgeous car. Buick Rally wheels. Wood grain siding on it. Really just a beautiful car with a 307 Oldsmobile motor in it. It was called a Y-Code engine. But anyway, <clears throat> what had happened was that it ran very poorly. Had no power. It was bucking. Check engine light was on intermittently. It was stalling in the whole, whole nine yards. And this car was all over the place. It was to a whole bunch of different shops. The gentleman was on vacation down at the beach in South Jersey and had developed a uh, intake manifold leak and somebody replaced the intake manifold gasket down there and then shortly thereafter the car started to act up. And in our local town of Hackettstown, he was in, he was to a bunch of different shops and uh, they rebuilt the carburetor, they did this, they did that, they changed the distributor. They did a whole bunch of things to it, and it still was basically the same. And it would intermittently run okay. It never really ran fine, but it ran so poorly when it acted up that the customer was almost a, almost a, uh, acceptable of it running okay. And so what I said to the gentleman is that what I'm going to need to do is I'm going to need to put it on the oscilloscope and see what's going on and see if I could determine what is happening. I said, obviously, it's going to have to act up to some to some extent while it's here for me to try to glean what's going on but I'm gonna that's gonna be the first step and for me to do that to put it on the oscilloscope and, and test everything is gonna be a charge I believe at that time was $50 this was years ago so he agreed to that and he says can I stay here with the car I said sure I have nothing to hide and we brought the car into the shop and I hooked up my oscilloscope it was an, an Allen test products oscilloscope that's the company I used to teach for. I was very familiar with it. Great machine. And I hooked up the scope, and I was looking at the ignition pattern in the car. The engine was the, the engine was running okay. It wasn't running great, but I noticed that when they had taken the carburetor apart, they had kind of messed up those adjustments. But that was secondary to what was going on. So I looked at it, and very quickly. Because of my experience, it's not because I'm smarter than anyone else. So please, I'm not this is not braggadocio I keep using it is that I looked at it very quickly and I was able to spot through experience only through experience that <coughs> there was a problem in the ignition system 
So I shut the car off and I said, based upon what I saw, it is probably one or two things. Either somebody put the wrong polarity pickup coil, wrong polarity pickup coil in, in, in this engine, or the it has a bad ground. So I said it was one of those two things, that the wrong polarity pickup coil. A lot of people don't realize in electronic ignition distributor there is actually a polarity for that pickup coil, that they have some models are wound one way and some models are wound the, uh, the opposite way. But because, so I said, let me look into, let me look at this, and because I was familiar with that engine, and he had told me that they had taken the intake manifold off. I knew on a 307 Oldsmobile motor, which was just a smaller version of a traditional Oldsmobile V8, is that on the passenger side, the last intake manifold bolt was not a bolt; it was a stud, and they had a, and there would be a whole bunch of grounds that would that would reside would terminate on that stud. So because I was familiar with this, and I knew that it either had a bad, had, had a wrong polarity pickup coil or a bad ground, I went and I reached back there, and lo and behold, when they changed the intake manifold gasket, they never tightened the bolt for the studs. The wire was just, the wires was three or four grounds that were back there, and they were just hanging there. What had happened was that the mechanic who was working on it put the grounds on to the stud but lost the nut so they were just moving around and not making contact and as the engine would torque they eventually were coming off the top of the stud so what i did is i got a nut that fit it and i put the uh put the grounds down on the stud tightened up the nut and uh started the engine up and it ran beautifully so I was very, very happy that my diagnostics were correct. And I felt that the customer would be very happy. And it's a new customer, and you know, I was able to diagnose this car in 10 or 15 minutes on the oscilloscope by seeing that. So I said to him, okay, you know, it'll be fine now, sir. And uh, take it for a ride. Everything is good. And come back and say, okay, let me just, I have to make up the uh, paperwork and what have you. So... What I did was I charged him the $50 that I said that I would for the scope analysis and did not charge him anything else for, you know, for putting a nut on there and tightening it. So now the car is running beautifully. The guy goes ballistic on me. I still remember it. He starts to scream at me. He goes, $50 for tightening a bolt? What are you, crazy? So I said to him, it's not, I said, I'm not charging you for tightening the bolt $50. I said, I'm charging you for the scope analysis. And and I didn't charge you anything to tighten the bolt. I said, but the thing is that I knew which bolt to tighten. You had spent over $1,000 already on this car and went around from place to place. I said, you only asked for your money back there. I said, and you're, and you're yelling at me for tightening a bolt for $50. So that's why basically I was saying oftentimes incompetence is rewarded because the other people charged him for parts and for labor that did not fix the car, and they took his money, and he, and he, was, uh, he went away with his tail between his legs, 
different because I knew what I was looking at and had the experience from teaching this for many years and working with oscilloscopes is that I saw what was wrong immediately happened to, you know, I was a hero, knew that the grounds were there, went to go grab the grounds and the nut wasn't there, tightened it up and everything was fine. So when he yelled at me saying that I was charging him $50 to tighten the bolt. So anyway, so that is the moral of the story. But, the, but that really isn't the moral of the story. But the thing is that, you know, that may be, I'm not going to say that may be fine because it really isn't fine. It's incompetence. And I'm not saying that, that I never misdiagnosed or did anything uh, to that like that in my life because then I would be lying to you. I'm not perfect. I'm just a man. But... The fact of the matter is that in when it comes to your equipment and your farm is that you're not billing anyone for for your mistakes. Whereas oftentimes in every other industry, in the repair industry, or even in the, sadly in the medical industry or the veterinary animal care industry or what have you, or is that the customer unwillingly well not unwillingly, unknowingly is the proper word, is pays for the misdiagnosis under the guise of well let's you know let's try that and see if it works and let's try you know and then on an engine so let's try a distributor see if it works let's try an injection pump see if it works and if it happens to work you're a hero and if it doesn't happen to work then well hey you, you give the customer a bill and you send them down the road and let's try something else but when it is your farm and it is your equipment then every time that you are throwing parts at something is that you're wasting your not only your time but you're wasting your hard-earned money and now is the moment for me to get in my soapbox and you'll know, get back into my normal preaching of saying it's not what you make in your farm it's what you keep and I want to drill that into you every week or almost every week because you could have the greatest crop prices the highest yields and if you have inefficiencies or mistakes on the other end you do not have a profit at the end of the year so it is very important for you to learn how to become a diagnostician with your farm equipment and all of your machinery because you throwing parts at it and you know a commodity classic I had given an example when I was talking about the need to to uh, do a voltage drop test on the ground and I had a gentleman that had contacted me he was not there but I used him as an example I did not use his name and he spent over four thousand dollars on a combine the dealer was replacing parts and this is not a you know not a hit on the dealerships or the independent repair guys or what have you I mean there's good guys everywhere and there's poor diagnosticians also but he spent over $4,000 and all it had was a bad, dirty ground, a loose ground. So if you figure it out, I got my calculator right here. I believe corn is, well, whatever, I believe it's around 350 a dozen, hope, a dozen, a, uh, a bushel. So $4,000 divided by 3.5, all right, that gentleman, it cost him 1,142 bushels almost 1,143 bushels of of revenue to, to that went into that combine because of a poor diagnosis and just changing parts and wiring harnesses on it when all it did was have a bad ground circuit just like that Buick station wagon.
So like I say, it's very, very important for you to be able to diagnose properly. And that's why I do call it a lost art. But the art may, but something cannot be lost if it was never found. And oftentimes there, most people and most mechanics, either professional or in the farm shop, do not really have a high level of diagnostic skills. They may be excellent as far as taking things apart and putting them back together. They may be an excellent welder or an excellent fabricator. And those are those are a different set of skill sets, but it's very important for you to become a diagnostician. And if you could diagnose something, then you are going not only going to get that piece of equipment uh, back up and running properly for the least amount of investment financially, but the least amount of investment in downtime and your time. So, what I like to do in my life and I'm breaking away for a second here, is that I I love reading trade magazines. And you could give me any trade magazine, and I don't care what the trade is, if it's doesn't have to be anything that I'm overly, you know, uh, like or intimate with or what have you. And I like to read trade magazines. And, And why do I like to read trade magazines? Because they give you a snapshot of the thought process of that industry. They give you a snapshot of the thought process of that business. Uh, Years ago when I worked for one of the publishers, we had a managing editor. And in the publishing business, it used to be a managing editor. It's not so much today. They just give the people a title. The managing editor would be some person. And traditionally, they they were women, but they could be a man also. And uh, But when I got into the business, they were traditionally women. And they had an English degree. They didn't know anything about what they were reading, but most, but most of not all technical writers, me included, do not have an English degree. So they would read the text, and what they would do was for this, for this one publishing company, it was CSK Publishing in New Jersey, had six or seven different magazine titles, and they would read it, and they would make sure that the grammar, the tenses were correct, that the punctuation was correct, and they may say, oh, no, we need to break this apart, and we need to we'll use a semicolon here in, instead of a comma or what have you. And I used to pride myself on working with, her name was Diane Bacadoro. I used to pride myself on working very closely when I submitted an article to Diane to have my goal was to have her have the minimum amount of correction and then if she did modify something or break something apart or make it into two paragraphs or two sentences or use a different punctuation then I would always query her on it and ask her to explain to me why why she did that because I wanted to learn to be able to diagnose my own writing skills and I also wanted to be able to produce the best product that I could and like I said it was my idea is that you have to give her something to have the and what we'd say in the in the magazine business or in the journalism business that it's very clean copy c-l-e-a-n that's very clean that this it's minimally needs to be dressed up or dolled up by the uh, managing editor so I I wanted to diagnose that so anyway so Diane also used to do some subcontract work for some medical magazines. So she had told me that. So I said to her, Diane, you know, can I, you, you, can I get a couple of copies or a copy or two of, uh, of the medical magazines that you do work for? She says, sure. She says, 
or that's no problem since it's a nursing magazine and a doctor's magazine. So I said, it's two different titles. So I said, I'd love to see it. So she got me some copies. And obviously, you know, I didn't know what they were talking about when it came to the actual medical terms. But what it did is that by scanning that, I didn't read everything. I didn't read the whole magazine cover to cover. But I would scan them and I would look at them and she'd get them for me every once in a while. And it would give me a mindset. It would give me exposure to the thought process of that industry. And I think that that is very, I think that is very, very important. And why I feel that is important is because by looking at different industries, and I've said this before, and looking at different thought processes, we could take those and we could now bring them back to the farm, to all aspects of the farm, not just what I'm concerned with, the farm shop. But if you, you know, if you look at something, let's say you're a wheat grower, and you look at some of the concerns or some of the uh, the obstacles that people may face growing watermelons, yeah, it's not going to be one-to-one, but you may glean one thing out of that. And that is the catalyst that allows you to now take that and say, go in that direction, and that helps you as a wheat grower, or that helps you as a dairyman, or as a or herdsman, or, or a, a row crop guy, what have you. So, you know, you don't have to be fully immersed in in that other industry, but as long as you get some exposure to it and come to it with an open mind, then you will be able to, you know, glean something, take it with you, and then use that, and, you know, no pun intended, to plant the seed for you to go and you take, to use that as inspiration to tune up one aspect or a certain aspect of your business or your procedures in your farm shop or what have you. So what I basically did learn from reading Diane's magazines and then watching the TV show House, if anybody remembered that about Dr. House who was a wacko but I used to enjoy the show, is that within the medical community they do have something that's called a differential diagnostic or differential. Lots of times they'll just say we need to run a differential. And by diff- by definition, a differential diagnostic procedure is a systematic diagnostic method that is used to identify the presence of a disease entity where multiple alternatives are possible. So what I am going to talk about today is employing differential diagnostics in the farm shop. And that is the key and it is a very effective way for you to be able to take a problem and instead of throwing parts at it, and I don't care whether it's a problem with a tractor, with a hydraulic system, whether it's a problem with a, a braking system or anything, and I'm going to ask you to get into the habit of running a differential. And if you have some some others that work with you in the farm shop, or if you're a one-man band, or you have two or three other people, be the family or, or, or employees that work with you, and you face a problem, then I want you to, to get so familiar that you're going to say, let's run a differential on it. And this is what you're going to do. So, and... As an aside to that, before I get into the differential diagnostic procedure, is that you could use this in every aspect of your farm operation or your life. That by 
by running what I'm going to explain to you, a differential diagnostic procedure, it, it brings clarity to what is going on. And instead of it being a hodgepodge of things and events that are all going on in your mind or possibilities, that it brings clarity. And once you start to have clarity, that it's very easy for you to see which path you could go. You could use, you could run a differential, even though it's not a diagnostic, run a differential on a marketing plan. You could run a differential on uh, your uh, uh, new. Uh, fertility program, I would say nutrition program, fertility program for your crops. You can run a differential on uh, on going and saying, well, hey, you know, should I rent this land or should I buy this land? You can run a differential on whether you should make a new equipment purchase. So it's going to be modified slightly because it's not a diagnostic, but the whole idea, it's rooted in the medical community as a differential diagnostic procedure. And the first thing, well, that you're going to need to do is you're going to you probably have it in your farm shop already or in your office and if you don't have it then it'll probably cost you about 25 or 30 dollars maybe a little bit more maybe a little bit less depending upon the size that you want and next time you're in town and there's an office supply store or some some store or get it through the mail is get yourself any a dry erase board and what you what you're going to do is you're going to use this dry erase board and you could use it for other things, but obviously when it comes to run a differential, I want you to use this dry erase board. And I want one that's big enough that you could write a whole bunch of different things on it. And the way a differential diagnostic would would uh, un- would take place, I'm stumbling over my words here, would take place is that you would have a symptom. And I'm going to make up a symptom as we as I go along here so we're gonna say engine stalls um, so diesel gas whatever obviously the procedure is gonna be different so engine stalls so that's what you're trying to diagnose so now you're gonna run a differential so what you're basically gonna do is you're gonna say the engine stalls and now on the dry erase board on one side you're gonna write the potential causes for the engine to stall no fuel no spark no compression what have you all right whatever's applicable and then you're going to go and say well okay well we know it has fuel because it runs but is it but is the fuel pressure good so it's going to cause you to think in a linear fashion and it's going to cause you to have a mental flow chart start in your mind but also on that whiteboard on that dry erase board and then what you will do is that because oftentimes and that's why the differential diagnostic procedure came about in the medical community it was used because or invented I should say because also another term which we're going to steal from the medical community is that they'll say a disease presents in a certain way so just like and we use we don't use the term present that much in agronomy even though i'm not an agronomist i haven't heard people say that but in the medical community is that they'll say well this disease presents this way for it to have you and what they mean by present is that it has symptoms either the way the patient feels or that are visual 
So if you have measles or you have mumps, you have a symptom of how you feel, but also there's a visual that's attached to it that's on your skin. So you can't have, you know, arguably mumps and not have the bumps on your skin. Or you can't have measles or you can't have poison ivy without the rash. So if you say, I'm itching, I'm itching, I'm itching, itching, and then you say maybe I have poison ivy, then through a differential you would say no, the, the, you don't have poison ivy because you do not have the rash that goes along with it. So when you run the differential on a problem with machinery, is that you will list on the other side of the board the, uh, the symptoms of that condition. And if you say, well, okay, and like I say, it's not going to be one for one, is that, you know, we say, okay, well, we know I have good fuel, I have fuel and I have fuel pressure, so we know it's not that. And it's very important for you to do that because if you spend some time and if you have other people in the shop that work with you that are familiar with material and you sit down and have a cup of coffee, have the whiteboard there, and you go and you start to run this differential and list the possible causes and then say, well, no, it's not doing that. So, for instance, let's say starving for fuel. And we say, well, I don't think it's starving for fuel. and that's I don't believe it's uh, stalling because it's starving for fuel for the simple reason being is that I could put a load on it and it will not stall under a load. So through a differential diagnostic diagnosis diagnoses you'd say well if it was starving for fuel the engine demands a lot more fuel on the load than it does at idle so i know it's not a fuel starvation problem because it doesn't present under load now if the engine would stall under load then you could say well yes it could be fuel delivery we know there's fuel in the tank, but it could be fuel delivery because it idles fine at light load. It's fine, but when I put my pedal, when I put the pedal to the metal and make this make this thing work, it it stalls and it very possibly is running out of fuel under load. So it's a fuel delivery issue. So that's a differential diagnostic procedure, and you're doing that. And the reason why you want the whiteboard is that you want something that's large. I mean, in theory, you could do it on a piece of paper, but it just doesn't work. Well, you want to be able to also stand back from it. You don't want to have a piece of paper that's sitting at a desk. You want to be able to stand back from it and study it and, you know, rub your chin with your hand or whatever you do. Put your hands on your hips, whatever you do when you're studying something. And then think it through and have the other members of your team, if they're involved, to start to look at it that and say, well, I don't think it's this. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's fuel because it, I, I could drive through the hesitation. And if I could drive through the hesitation, I know it's not starving for fuel. But maybe it's not getting a, a an, an enrichment signal from the throttle position sensor. And once I drive through that and go steady state, it could take the load. So I, that it's very important for you to run those things through and then give it some clarity and then once you start to get very familiar with it there are going to be times that you run a differential through in your mind without any whiteboard uh the more complicated things it's always best to have the whiteboard but but there'll be there'll be issues where you'll actually have a, a whiteboard in your mind and you'll be running a differential and uh i basically did that the other day is that a good friend of mine called me up and he has an older Suburban and he said it wasn't starting as well uh, it was a fault of fuel injected Suburban but yet it's already 20 years old 
time is flying by. So anyway, so he, he told me about the about the starting problem when it was cold, extended crank. And then he said it didn't seem to uh, to to idle as fast when it was cold as it did before that it used to, he's had the vehicle for many years, 10 or 15 years. And then when he would shut it off and it would be under a heat soak, he'd come back 10 minutes later, it would crank, crank, crank and not start and then he would have to put his foot to the floor to make it start. So what happened was that I started to ask him questions and I started to say to him, okay, let's, so I did a differential in my mind over the telephone. I said, oh, let's throw out the fa- that, that it doesn't fast idle now, all right? Or it doesn't fast idle as high as it did before. I said, let's get that out of the equation for now. I said, because on my differential, he said, what the hell are you talking about differential? He said, I don't have a problem with the rear end. It don't start. I said, no, it's a differential diagnosis. He said, don't, don't, well, I'm not talking about differentials in the rear end. So I said, let's throw that out because that's going to skew our, skew our path and take us off the beaten path here. So he says, well, I could try to start it now. I've been sitting here. Uh, it just doesn't want to start. So I said, okay. I said, but before you start it, before you start it, I said, let me ask you. When you put your foot to the floor, I said, and it eventually starts, does it start like it's dirty, like it has a lot of fuel? Or does it start Does it start relatively clean? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, does it load up and blah, 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 and then, and then clear itself out and run smoothly? He says, no, once it fires, he says, I release the throttle and it you know, idles down and it runs fine and it drives fine after that. He said, it's just a starting issue, a little bit hard when it's cold, but very hard on the, on the uh, restart. So he says, okay, he says, I'm going to start. So I'm going to put my phone on speaker so you could hear it. And he he cranked it over, cranked it over, and then all of a sudden he says, I'm now put my foot to the floor, and he started. And I heard that she started very cleanly. It's, once it started, it fired. It fired and went right back. It didn't have to clean itself out. So I said, no, I said, from what I could hear, I said, it sounds like it's starting, that it starts clean once you do get it to start. He says, oh, somebody told me it's injectors and this and that. I said, well, how does it drive otherwise? He says, it drives fine once it starts. I said, I'm not saying it doesn't have an injector that's leaking down or what have you or poor atomization. I said, but I do not feel that that's your problem with your starting. I said, we're throwing out for now in a differential diagnosis. We're throwing out for now the lack of fast idle or idle flare-up when you first start it. And when it's cold, I said, and based upon what I feel that the problem is, I think that you have an issue either with the coolant sensor has skewed or uh, the ECU is misinterpreting the coolant sensor data. I said, and I would pick the low-hanging fruit first and say that it's probably the coolant sensor and or whatever, the wiring or the connection or what have you. So, I said General Motors uses. I said the coolant sensor should be in the intake manifold, the not in the cylinder head. And General Motors and those systems use yellow and black wires. So I said find a sensor that's in the manifold in the front of the manifold by the thermostat. I said and it's going to have yellow and black wires. He says okay. He says I'm going to. It's running now. When I get back to the shop, I'm going to go look at it. So about an hour later, he calls me and he curses me out. And he says to me, you son of a gun, he says, 
He says, I, I found the yellow and black wires, and they're all chewed up, and they're all messed up, and they're, they're hardly even something ate the wiring harness. So I said to him, go to, go to town, and you go to a better auto parts store, and they'll sell you a pigtail. They'll have a pigtail, which is going to be the proper connector, with it, and hopefully yellow and black wire. And then you could cut back the wires and solder in the new connector with the pigtail and shrink tube it and everything will be fine. And he did that and then he said to me, the truck runs fantastic, but now it's got a, it's got a coolant leak to the back heater. So I said, well, I can't help you with that. Find a hole in a pipe. But anyway, so like I said, I'm telling you that story and I'm repeating again not to brag or not to do anything but the fact of the matter is is that through a differential diagnosis uh, I was able to determine in my mind and or like I say if you have a whiteboard write it down in a whiteboard and you could say well I can't be injected because it runs fine it can't be this it can't be this it doesn't present that way use the medical terms present a bad injector doesn't present that way or it'll give a it'll give a rough idol it'll give something else and I'm just throwing things around and bantering and you will uh, be able to very quickly very quickly be able to get through that procedure but what I what I'm holding this for the end is that for you to be a good diagnostician is going to take uh, um, many years of experience and and I'm sure that you guys have that are listening to this have many years of experience but that experience needs to be able to understand how systems work how things work for you to accurately run a differential because if you have no idea how a centrifugal pump works or a sprayer pump works then obviously you cannot run a differential because you're not familiar with how that system operates so the i'm assuming that over the years that you have been exposed to so many things and remember that you know that's why getting back to the you know to the medical field is that you know a doctor always says that he's practicing medicine he doesn't say that you know he he's, he's he's performing medicine he's performing surgery but he's practicing medicine because within the industry when you're practicing something that means that you're constantly evolving you're constantly learning and that needs to happen in the farm shop with your equipment you need to constantly evolve and that's what I'm really trying to do with my website and my podcast I am trying to be able to give you enough of an education enough of transfer of knowledge i like to use that term transfer of knowledge because that's what it is transferring knowledge from one person to another or to a group of people and you're not looking to design it you're not looking to re-engineer it but you're looking to become intimate with it intimate enough to the level that you could understand and how it works, how it functions for the most part, and then be able to accurately run a differential diagnosis. And what that means is that you often have have to look at stuff and pay attention to things when they are working properly. So, for instance, on my Christmas podcast with the gifts, 
and I brought this up, uh, I think, a, a podcast or back. There's a uh, a company called Steelman, and I always talk, I spoke about it already a couple of weeks, and they have this listening device they call Chassis Ears. So the thing basically is, is that if you're familiar, you know, and in the farm, winter is a great time for this, right? You could go, hey, you know, buy the Chassis Ears for $100 and listen to your seed meters, run them if they're electric, right? Listen to your seed meters, listen to your hydraulic pumps, listen to parts on your combine, listen to your injection pump. And the thing basically is, is that once you get exposed to that and start to be familiar with it, then you could run a differential on it. If there's a problem, you could say, well, you know, I don't know how that, you know, I know how that pump always sounds, or I know how the other four seed meters sound, or five or whatever, and this one sounds different. So without that, without that uh, background, it's going to be very difficult or almost impossible for you to run a differential because what you're going to basically do is write, you're going to become a parts changer and you're going to throw parts at it and all you did was write the parts that you were throwing on the dry erase board before you bought them and threw them at the, at the uh, unit, be it the, the tractor, the truck, what have you. So, you know, you need to be able to be familiar, become familiar with those different things. And, you know, like I say, and and do the same thing with your crops. Do the same thing with everything. Is that familiarity is such a key component in diagnostics. Because at your particular level, at our level, I mean, I'm, I'm there with you. I, I mean, I need to be able to diagnose whether it's through you know, first step visual and then through testing a new nutrient deficiency in my sweet corn crop. I don't have to be intimate with the physiology of the plant and how it converts sugars to starch and how it does this and da 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 and all the other. I need to have some exposure to it. I need to have a basic cursory understanding of it, but I need to know enough that I could be able to diagnose that this corn plant has a nitrogen deficiency, confirm it with testing, and put more N down in the field so I have a profitable crop. And you need to do the same thing. You don't need to re to have become electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, and the thing is about you need to be able to, to understand the circuits, and I mean the circuits, whether it's a mechanical circuit, electric circuit, hydraulic circuit, enough, and have what we would call empirical data. And I've, uh, and I always like to establish this. There's two parts to anything in engineering. There's the empirical and there's the theoretical. And the most, the best engineers, just like the best farmers, right, are the guys who have a, have the theory and also apply empirical data. And what empirical data basically is, let's make it simple. Empirically, that means real-world experience. Think of empirical as real-world experience. Empirically, you know that if you ride on the field a lot, you're going to compact the soil, and the corn is not going to plant well there and not going to grow there because the roots aren't going to be able to be, uh, be to break through that compaction. Okay, so that's the empirical. We know what's going to happen if you ride on the soil a lot. The theoretical will explain the dynamics of why, how those soil molecules are compressed, how it's not allowing any oxygen in, it's not allowing any water in, and how how the seed doesn't have enough energy in it to be able to break through that crust and that hard soil to emerge. So that's the, so the theoretical is going to basically explain why that's happening, 
The empirical is for you to know that if I ride on the soil and I'm planting in it, I'm not gonna, it's not going to grow well there. So what you need to do is have a combination of empirical and theoretical data because the theory is going to establish. So theory will establish why it's happening and then the empirical will establish how it's happening. Don't ride on the field. And you won't compact the soil. So now, just to recap this and uh, make it make it simple, is that I would like for you to invest in a whiteboard, some dry erase markers. You may have a board on your shop ready that you could use, as long as you don't, as long as you could write on it freely without worrying about anything else. And I want you to be able to put it in a place where you could stand back and look at it, get the 30,000-foot view, right? Stand back and look at it. And whenever you face any problem in the farm shop, whether it's how to get a rusted bolt out, run a differential on it. Well, we could we could put a torch on. No, 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 we can't put a torch on because it's got a sensor right there or melt it. Okay, we could do this, we could do this, we could do that. So whatever it may be, run a differential, you know, and if you run a differential diagnostic on that, you're going to see, and trust me, that 99% of the time, you're going to bring clarity and efficiency to that procedure and or that diagnostic, and you're not going to waste time, you're not going to waste money. And the thing also is that when you run a differential, just like they say, the best way for you to learn something is to have to teach it, when you have to explain it to yourself or explain it to your other other guys in the shop that you're working with and say why you think it's that is that you're going to have a wonderful wonderful self-education experience and your diagnostic skills be it on the equipment be it on your marketing plan what have you you're going to become so intimate with it through the differential diagnostic procedure so please spend 25 or 30 dollars get a dry erase board put a chair away from it and stare at it and think it through we used to call that years ago think talking think it through talk talk aloud say no it can't be this or it wouldn't be this and use the medical terms it doesn't present that way so and you'll be surprised so when you go to your doctor or a veterinarian comes to your dairy farm or your herd and you use these words let's run a differential present he's going to have a different newfound respect for you but please it's the most efficient way for you to get to diagnose something it's an efficient way for you to get from from point a to point b when you have an issue in the farm shop and it's actually quite it's a lot of fun because you're uh, you're actually you're it's almost like solving a mystery so now i'm going to quickly get to the special delivery section and you know it is brought to you by firestone ag a company founded by harvey firestone a fourth generation farmer from columbiana ohio harvey dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors and his innovative mindset is the core of firestone ag today and lives on with their 23 degree tread bar and ad2 technology the soil is the lifeblood of your farm trusted only to firestone and I'm sure Harvey did a lot of differential diagnostics, even though he may not have called it that when he was trying to develop the pneumatic farm tire. So I have a letter here from Peter, uh, from uh, from Tom. I don't know why I have Peter over here, but anyway, uh, Tom Grimes from Oklahoma. 
And he says, my name is Tom, and I enjoy your website and podcast. I have a John Deere combine that has a tier 4 engine, and it runs fine with no issues. But it seems to use more DEF, that's diesel exhaust fluid, now than it did two harvests ago. I am done with it for the winter, so I figured I would get some ideas to check out before next harvest. There are no visible leaks. I have no hard numbers, but I would know how long I could run it before it needed DEF, and it is much shorter now. Thanks, Tom from Oklahoma. Well, thank you for writing, Tom, and thank you for enjoying the website and podcast. I know I certainly enjoy creating it, and I hope that uh, you guys don't find me too politically incorrect as I yell at you and uh, just make make demands on you for, uh, you know, hey... We have uh, failure is not an excuse as far as I'm concerned. And so, in essence, uh, in a nutshell, what's probably happening is that the engine is starting to run uh, less efficiently, and it's probably and for whatever reason, it's building more oxides of nitrogen emissions, and that is what the DEF is used in the SCR system. I have a very in-detail article on my website, farmmachineredigest.com, under the learning series, uh, and that was actually uh, something that ran that I created for the Ag PhD magazine from the Hefty Brothers. Uh, that uh, I think it was in the first or second issue, but anyway, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to look at that. But the thing is that if it's creating more oxides of nitrogen, oxides of nitrogen are are created this uh, this something called the Zeldovich equation, and what that basically establishes is pressure, heat, or exposure time. So, in simple terms, if you are creating more oxides of nitrogen production in that engine than one of those uh, three elements of the Zeldovich equation, either the pressure, the heat, or the exposure time is being increased. And I would probably have to say is that the combustion event is becoming more inefficient on that engine, uh, and it's probably due to carbon deposits in it, and probably specifically uh, a poor atomization from the common rail injectors. So I think it's a combination of carbon. I think it's a combination of uh, carbon, poor atomization, and also possibly the cetane level and the and the quality of the fuel that you're buying. This is no, you know, don't get mad at your fuel distributor. It's not his fault. The fuel, fuel, diesel fuels. I said many times is a commodity, like corn. It all goes through a pipeline. So what I would do is that I would uh, get a good. I would dose it with a high level of injector cleaner. I happen to like the FPPF brand of products, and I would dose with a high level of injector cleaner. Obviously, you have to run it, so it'll be next season. And then I would treat all my fuel with an additive that is going to raise the cetane and have a combustion stabilizer in it. And then again, I mean, there's a lot of good brands out there, and some out in Oklahoma, I know that there is uh, there's a couple of people that make some treated fuel right from the pump. Uh, I think Cenex makes a good product, but you could always put more additives in. You're never hurting anybody or insulting them. And I think that if you were to clean up the injectors, clean up the carbon, and give that engine some more cetane and a better combustion event, that you will be able to have, if you have a better combustion event, you will have a, uh, 
and a better burn rate, then you will probably lower those oxides of nitrogen emissions. And that is the first place that I would start. The next place that I would go, which would be a little bit harder, I'd like to pick the low-hanging fruit first, is that that system does have an NOx sensor. And through that sensor, which is almost like an oxygen sensor, it looks like, it's able to determine whether... Uh, the amount of oxides of nitrogen being produced, and it uses that to uh, to control how much diesel exhaust fluid is in, in, inter injected into the supplemental supplemental catalytic reduction system. And if that sensor starts to skew, then it's going to think that there's more NOx than there is, and it could uh, and it will start to use more DEF because it's giving it fake news, just like on TV, fake news. So uh, what I would do is I would uh, treat the fuel first, and then, you know, the whole problem is it is a combine. And once you get involved with harvest, you really don't want to stop and be doing stuff. So I would treat the, I would treat the fuel first, and then I would talk to your John Deere dealer. You know, this gets back to the empirical, and tell him what's happening and see if they said, oh yeah, we have found that these sensors start to skew over the years or over so many hours, and then they start to use more DEF. Uh, it may be a combination of both. If it were a tractor and not a combine, and you could say, well, you're going you're gonna to use it to plant or do something else, I would say just treat it first. But I would definitely treat the fuel and continually do that and and put a good injector cleaner in it. You're not going to hurt anything with that. And then, But I would not be surprised if that sensor is starting to skew. And I think that, don't hold me to, I think they're around 100 or $150, but you may even just want to check with the John Deere dealer. And at that particular point, if it's not too costly, uh, throw a new sensor in it. But that's you know, those are the two areas, but it's going to be hard for you to determine this without running, you know, running the engine under load to have to create uh, NOx and, in, and inject the diesel exhaust fluid. It's all acronyms like alphabet soup, right? Well, anyway, you know, I, uh, if we're coming right up on Christmas and I don't know if I'll be able to talk to you before Christmas, but it's the most wonderful, joyous time of year, the birth of our Savior, and please don't lose sight of that. And I want to thank you so much for listening to me and for visiting my website, the the Hot Rod Farmer, the Dry Land Hot Hot Rod Farmer. And I just want you to know that uh, you are pulling for you, the farmer and rancher, and my beloved America. If I don't speak to you before, you have a blessed, blessed Christmas, and thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 